Please open your scriptures with me to Genesis chapter 34. We continue our our journey through Genesis. Just to reorient us, we have seen in chapter 32 and 33 that Jacob has had his encounter with Esau and that great forgiveness that is displayed there be Esau towards Jacob. He promises in chapter 33 to follow Esau back down south to uh, Seir. But as soon as Esau is gone, Jacob heads west into the promised land, which is a good thing. And he settles near Shechem. He buys land from a leading citizen in that city, Hamor. And he settles down with his family and with his flocks. He even erects an altar there. You see that in the last line of chapter 33. To God and calls it El Elohi Israel, Meaning, God is the God of Israel. And that's where we pick up our reading. In chapter 34, verse 1, God's word says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hevite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to her fa- his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor The father of Shechem went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field. As soon as they heard of it, the men were indignant and very angry because what he had done was an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke to them saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to me him as his wife. Make marriages with us. Give us your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to the brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give you. Ask me for what, as great a bride price and gifts as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and the father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, 
and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's household. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the city, to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the city gate listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out to the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Father God, you have preserved this for us today. Lord, speak to your people. Teach them, correct them, rebuke them, and train them in righteousness as your word is expounded. Be with me and give me your heart and your words in Jesus' name. Amen. Jacob is back in the promised land, and that's a good thing. That's where he was generally headed but we see in his return to the promised land that, that his return is marred by several inconsistencies. The first of which is that he lied to his brother Esau. We saw that back in chapter 33. It was a bold-faced lie. Esau went south. Jacob went west. Second thing we see is if we look at the first verse in chapter 35, I think that God had Bethel in mind. For Jacob to return to. And yet Jacob went to Shechem. And the third inconsistency is perhaps why he even settled in Shechem in the first place. Why would he settle there? Well, probably for many of the same reasons that you and I look for a place to settle when we're moving. 
He was looking for a good neighborhood and a, and a people that he could relate to. He was looking for opportunities for his family and for his children, a culture that he, he felt comfortable in. Jacob was perhaps thinking along the same lines as we do. Shechem had a verdant valley for grazing his flocks. It was a center of trade and, and, and of culture, civilization that would give his family opportunity. But perhaps James Boyce puts his finger on, on why he, he was attracted to Shechem when he writes, perhaps Jacob settles there for many of the same reasons that Lot settled near Sodom. Whatever the motive, we find here that this move was not a good move for his daughter, Dinah. Here's this teenage girl that had led a pretty sheltered life up to this point. She becomes curious, we see in verse 1, about the women of the land, the Canaanites. She's curious how they dress, how they act, what they do. She wants to know about how these women speak and how they carry themselves. And so she heads out to the city alone. Notice that. She heads out to the city alone and tragically ends up being taken advantage of by the prince of that city, Shechem, whom the city is named after, and raped by him. And not only that, she's held captive. We find out in in verse 26 that that Dinah was held captive during these whole negotiations. Well, the brothers aren't going to stand for that. So they hatch a plan that leads to the total annihilation of every man in that city. What a horrible and depraved chapter we're in. Ian Duguid writes in his commentary, we live in a world in which many profoundly evil things happen. True. And then he poses this question, which will frame our thought for today. He poses this question, how should a Christian respond? How should a Christian respond when living in evil times? When living among evil acts? How should a Christian respond or live in a world where there is murder and genocide and serial killings? Where there's prostitution and abortion and child pornography? In a society where there is human trafficking and child abuse and rape, just like here? What's the proper response to these and many other horrific things that are imposed on the innocent? How are we to respond to a world that is so very broken? Do you realize that, brothers and sisters? It's one of the things that's on the surface of this chapter that you can just, the low-hanging fruit, so, so to speak. We live in a severely broken world. In a world whose brokenness many times affects the innocent. Well, there's no secret. I'll tip my hand at the beginning of this sermon. The proper response is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The gospel is the only place where victim and victimizer find redemption. The gospel is the only place where forgiveness and restitution come together. But we'll get to that in a minute. I think what this chapter puts forth is two polar but equally improper responses to the world around us. Two polar but equally improper responses to the evil around us. And the first is compromise. Compromise. It's a story that is told in Michael Jordan's book of Fred Whitfield, president and CEO of the NBA uh, team, the Charlotte Hornet uh, Bobcats. He tells a fascinating story about something Michael Jordan did when getting ready to go out one evening. When Jordan asked if he could borrow one of Whitfield's jackets, he found Whitfield's closet filled with both Nike and Puma apparel. The Puma outfits had been given to Whitfield because of his relationship with Ralph Sampson, who was a Puma representative, and all the Nike stuff was given to Whitfield because of his relationship with Michael Jordan and Nike. Whitfield recalls that Jordan, who represented Nike for years, walked into the living room, laid the Puma gear on the floor, went into the kitchen, got a butcher knife, and came back in and shredded all the Puma apparel. He then scooped it up and took it to the dumpster and threw it out. Jordan came back inside and he turned to Fred and said, Don't ever let me see you wearing anything but Nike. You cannot sit on the fence. What Jordan did in a very visceral way was to show that he could not abide Whitfield's compromise. For Jordan, it was all or nothing. There was nothing passive about Michael Jordan. And that's the compromise that we see in Jacob, his passivity. That's the, that's the compromise that Jacob, that we see all throughout this chapter. Look with me at verse 1. As, as I said earlier, Dinah goes out alone into the city. She ventures out alone. This young teenage girl who is curious about this new city she was in goes out alone. Now that might not seem profound, a profound insight in 2018 AD, but in 1900 BC, a girl never, ever went out alone. Never. It would have been totally inappropriate for her to venture out like this. Her father Jacob should have known that. Her father Jacob should have either seen that she had a chaperone or he should have gone with her. Or he should have stopped her altogether. As one commentator put it, Jacob should have protected her from herself. Instead, he is conspicuously absent, passive. Quick application here, and this is directed at everybody, but specifically the teenagers You're not going to like this. You're not going to like hearing this. But you know what parenting is sometimes? It's saving you from you. It really is. It's saving you from you. 
protecting you from yourself. When parents say no to co-ed sleepovers, we're protecting you from you. When parents say you can't go alone with the boy and be alone with him, we're protecting you from you. When we say no to going to parties where there's drugs and alcohol present, we're protecting you from you. Being out a certain, past a certain time, it really is protecting you from you. And Jacob did not do that. He was a passive parent. That's not the only time we see his passivity, though. Look at, look at in verse 5 at Jacob's reaction when he hears about the rape of his daughter. Did you pick up on it? He held his peace. Really, Jacob? That's your reaction to something that horrific having, having been done to your daughter? He held his peace. This is so incredibly understated that it actually stands out, doesn't it? His dear daughter had been violated and harmed in such an egregious way, and there's no hint of outrage, of fury, of indignation. Only after Simeon and Levi take revenge and slaughter the men of Shechem do we see why. Did you catch that in verse 30? He's so worried about his reputation. And he's so fearful of the men taking retribution. So Jacob doesn't speak up. He doesn't confront. Jacob is compromisingly passive. And this, dear brothers and sisters, is a concession that we make all the time to the world, don't we? This is a concession that I make. We're passive, we're silent, we're compromising. We, we ride that slow slide of silence into passivity. D.A. Carson writes, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of loss of self-control, and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves that we're escaping legalism. We drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We find all kinds of ways to frame our passivity, don't we? Both in our obedience to God and our stand for truth in the world, we are silent when people speak blasphemy. We're silent when they defame the name of our Lord. We lower our voices to a whisper when we talk about our faith, when we're out in public. 
I sat with a dear brother this week, and we read John 9 together, just in closing our time together. Interestingly, how many conversations Jesus had that we think are with one person, but if you really look at the context, there's many people standing around them. And this is one of them. John 9, if you remember, is that is after he healed the man that was born blind. And the synagogue rulers bring him in and question him. And they question the blind man on the floor of the synagogue. And he says, I don't know. I just know that I was blind, but now I see. And so they bring in the parents. Do you remember that? And they say, well, was this man born blind? And they question them. And, and finally, the parents actually throw the, the, their son under the bus. Ask him. They're fearful of what's going to happen to them. So they bring the blind man back in. And the blind man, you know, they question him again. And finally, the blind man says, you're, you're asking me all these questions. Do you want to become a disciple of this man? And that was it for the synagogue rulers. They throw him out of the synagogue. And we think that in, in, in verse 35 and following in that chapter, I've always read it as, okay, it says that Jesus found the blind man and talks to him. I always thought they had a, you know, Jesus found him alone somewhere and they talked. But listen to the conversation. It says in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and they found him and he found him and said, do you believe in the son of man? He's asking the blind man this. The blind man says, who is he, sir? Tell me that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. He's claiming to be Messiah. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And the text says he worshipped him right there. Jesus then goes on and says this, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who, will, who see will become blind. Now why did Jesus say that? Kind of a out-of-the-blue coda to their conversation. The very next line tells us. very next verse says, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? He was among people having this conversation. He's calling the Pharisees blind, spiritually blind. I can even see Jesus talking to the man and kind of turning as he's saying that. And those who see will become blind. Speaking the truth, even in an uncomfortable public situation, Jesus showed us time and time again that he, that he was uncompromising. He was perfect in truth and grace, but he was uncompromising. He stood where his own words stood. And yet, compromise and passivity is the temptation of our hearts to be silent, to keep it to ourselves. And it's encouraged by the world around us, isn't it? Don't speak up. Don't stand too firm. Don't rock the boat. Don't be so unyielding. 
and narrow. The world says, in various and sundry ways, be like us. Become like us. That's the world's whisper. Just like it was in Jacob's time. And you can see that in verses 9 and 10, when Hamor comes to, to negotiate for Dinah and says, you know what? We'll give you our daughters in marriage. And, and we'll marry your daughters. And, and we will become one people. Did you hear that refrain as I read? Go back and read it. We will become one people. That's what the world wants us. Hamer, in asking for Dinah's hand in marriage, couches it in a bigger offer. Intermarry. Become one. He's offering a peace treaty of sorts to God's people. And that's always the world's offer to us. Be like us. Be one with us. Become one with us. Let's compromise. The world says, be like us. But God calls us people to a different standard, as we all know. God calls us to be a separate people. That's why I had us read 2 Corinthians 6 today. He calls us to be separate. Distinct. Different. Later on, when he gives the law, he will forbid intermarrying, not on the basis of race. Not on the basis of race. Moses was... Married to a to Zipporah. It's not on the basis of race. It's on the basis of faith. It's on the basis of faith. That was the reason for so many of the laws that God set down. Dietary dress, clothing, sowing single seeds into your fields. To show the world that God's people are separate. And to teach God's people that they are to live separately. Differently than the world around them. Distinctly from the world around them. And here, as soon as God's people... Now, notice this. As soon as Jacob comes back into the Holy Land, what's the first whisper? Be like us. Just don't be distinct. Intermarry. Have you ever heard a sermon that you remember decades later? I remember one that that was preached about 25 years ago. I still remember the title, Who Moved the Boundary Markers? And I still remember the very text he was preaching on, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight, which reads, Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your fathers. His application of that text was God set specific boundary markers. And our temptation is to always move them a little at a time. Moving these boundaries. Giving God one whole day out of seven. The Sabbath. Giving God one whole day out of seven. Let's move that boundary marker just a little. Let no coarse language come from your mouth. Well, that's such a, a good joke. Just move that just a little. Sex only within the context of a covenant relationship called marriage. 
that's way too rigid. We've got to move that just a little. Sexual relationships between a man and a woman only. We've got to move that. Marrying only someone who believes that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Well, my goodness, that's too hard. There's too few of them around here. We've got to move that boundary marker a little bit. It's way too rigid. Ian Duguid writes, Don't let down your guard once you arrive in the land. As long as we live on this earth, our lives must be continually marked by a watchful pilgrimage. I challenge you and encourage you today to think about how you have moved a boundary marker. How you have just a little and how that has affected your life. I also want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, I want to free you from the thinking that what I have just preached to you is legalistic and rigid and intolerant and unloving to stand for truth. If a person tells you that gravity does not exist and they are convinced that gravity does not exist, is it, is it intolerant or too rigid or unloving to explain to them that gravity is just a fiat truth? Just as when a person tells you that they believe a man or a woman is really a man and a man is really a woman, is it rigid and legalistic and unloving and intolerant to try and explain to them in the context of your relationship, that that's just a not true. For God placed a boundary stone of gender. And one mistake we can make is being passive and compromised and not saying anything. But there's another mistake that we see in this text, and that is a cold-heartedness. As one mistake we made is being passive and compromising. And the other polar mistake we can make, brothers and sisters, is being cold-hearted towards the world. The question of how to respond to the evil in the world, the brothers reacted in a cold-hearted manner. Now they actually have the emotional reaction that that most of us would have. It's a normal reaction of fury and rage and outrage and indignation and proclaiming this thing cannot be done. They have the right reaction. It's the proper reaction to an egregious violation. But they plan something that, according to some commentators, is just as evil. The wholesale slaughter the genocide, if you will, of one town. They planned it all along. You see it in verse 13. They answered deceitfully. They had this plan cooked up. 
they agree deceitfully to the marriage between Shechem and Dinah only to have the men of the city, only if they'll become circumcised, only if they will become one with us. They're even turning that on its head. Their plan was once they were incapacitated, Simeon and Levi would lead a gang and kill all the men and plunder the city. In other words, they would exact revenge. They would act on their cold-hearted anger. And that's what it leads to. Coldness of heart leads to anger. And this is many times my reaction to the world. And I'll dare to say your reaction to the world. Anger. Anger. How could they do that? How can they think that way? Our indignation, righteous as it might be, overwhelms us and our hearts become angry, calloused, and cold to the world. If we're not careful, we begin to point fingers at the world in anger. And tell me if this is the dialogue of your heart and mine, because it is sometimes mine. I point in anger and I say, look at them. I can't believe that. Can't believe what they're doing. Can't believe that they just passed that. Can you believe they said that? Now you might be right. You actually might be right in pointing out the sin of this world. But if you stay in that place long enough, I will guarantee you that your heart will become cold towards the world. If you stay there long enough, what happens is your heart begins to harden towards the plight, the helpless plight of this world. You begin to take on an us versus them mentality. Start building up the walls. You begin to see the world as the true enemy. And without the loving balance that the gospel brings to our hearts, we can become so angry at the world that we can actually begin to care less what happens to it. I don't care. Let them all die. Brothers and sisters, with all that's going on in the world today, it's so easy to become cold-hearted, isn't it? Isn't that the natural slide for us today? With all the issues that are going on socially, marriage on the decline, living together on the incline, children born out of wedlock at record highs, People living in sin and not even thinking anything of it. I mean, does it, isn't it strange that when I say that, that term isn't used anymore? Living in sin together? We've compromised, haven't we? With all the sin and brokenness, we can begin to hate the world. Hate the world. And if you do not let the gospel speak into your heart, you can become so hate-filled that you can begin to wish the world ill. 
just like Dinah's brothers. You can become so cold-hearted that you don't care if they live or die. I don't care. And it'll begin to affect how you even share the gospel, if you even share the gospel. Maybe for some of us, we're so cold-hearted that we hold it back. They don't deserve that. And it is that precise moment that we have to remind ourselves that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world to offer the world peace and salvation and hope and love. In order to offer forgiveness, eternal forgiveness. We have to remind ourselves that however much we've been hurt by the world, and that's where the cold-heartedness comes from, however much we've been hurt by the world, God has been hurt so much deeper. Do you realize that? It doesn't hold a candle to how he has been hurt. His creation, his, his, his people that he wanted to be family with, wholeheartedly turned their back on him. And we, collectively, the human race, refuse to even call him father. Some refuse to even acknowledge his existence anymore. Put that in the family context. Imagine if your child said, I don't even acknowledge that that he's my father or mother, that's my family. We find ourselves that however angry we are at sin in the world, it doesn't hold a candle to the wrath and anger that God has towards the sin in the world. And because of our sin, Scripture says, he had every right, God had every right to do exactly what Dinah's brothers did to the whole human race. Wipe us out. The wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 6. In his righteous anger, he could have easily obliterated us and been perfectly just in doing it. Yet God's heart didn't become cold, but broke for the world. That's what the gospel tells us. God's heart broke for the world. Instead of a cold-heartedness, there was love. So much love, even though he was hurt, he sent his only son into the world to live the life that you and I fail to do every moment. Instead of compromising, Jesus was steadfast. Instead of passivity, Jesus was courageous. Instead of retaliation, Jesus showed love. On the cross, he said memorably, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you believe that? That should melt our hearts. And he didn't stop at forgiveness. 
Jesus also agreed to on the cross, as he agreed to with the Father, he said, don't wipe humanity out. Wipe me out. That's what his death on the cross represents. God's full wrath and fury and anger towards sin directed precisely at one person at one time, and that is Jesus Christ on the cross. He took the penalty for our sin upon himself. On that day, as 2 Corinthians 6 tells us, on that day God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And there's the offer of the gospel. Are you a son or daughter of the living God? Do you realize how far short you fall from the perfect life? Do you see that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness? If those things are true, Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, is the best news you've ever heard. Because he absorbs your penalty and your sin. And he gives you perfect righteousness to be able to be in the presence of God forever. That is the gospel. And that is the good news. It's the only place where both the victim and the victimizer will find forgiveness and restitution. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it. And Spirit, we rely on you to use it in our lives to change us. In Jesus' name, amen.